There was a time when this was happening uh, in Somalia and international fishing fleets would come in and they would take as much as they wanted without permission or respect to the local communities there. So the fishermen and the youth banded together as a militia to stop this from happening because this was not, this was not okay. And, and then they were, you know, the, the whole narrative that you heard in the news was these are pirates that are stealing international um, fishing fleets and ships. How, how, why would they do this? But then the thing is, when you ask why would they do this, you're not really getting the answer. You're just saying, we just need to get rid of them. And it's like, well, they're protecting their land. Welcome to the show. My name is Lily Bukala Piper, and as always, we are so grateful that you have tuned in today. So as we have been diving into season two of the show, we are so pleased that today we are literally diving into the depths of the ocean with a dear friend who is a shark geneticist and biologist. And not only is he a shark geneticist and biologist, but he's a Kenyan shark geneticist and biologist, which makes him, I think, one of the very few people in the world representing both the continent and the beautiful oceans that surround us. Before I tell you more about him, I just want to say, you know, for my family, going to the coast has been a great privilege of living in this beautiful country. Some of our favorite memories are, you know, being in Diani, being in Mombasa, letting all of our cares kind of roll away and enjoying the beauty of nature. I remember a few years ago, however, my kids were in the ocean, you know, we're having a good time. My husband was really sure to tell them about um, these undertoes and being careful about that. And then at some point, somebody shouted, screamed, and started running out of the water. My first thought, of course, is that there is a shark. How could, uh, what else could it be? We all scream. We all run out. It turns out it was just a jellyfish. But of course, it made me start to wonder, you know, we have just been enjoying the coast, but are, are we in danger? Is there any threat? And as somebody who spent a lot of time in the U.S., there was never a summer that went by that someone in Florida, in California, that there wasn't some kind of shark attack, so to speak, that made the news and, and caused panic and fear. So for that time in, in the coast, I remember thinking, OK, that's it. Here we go. We're going to be on the news. Thankfully, it was not that. But it certainly just reminded me how deep and wide the ocean is. And if I'm not wrong, I think water covers more of the earth than the land does. And yet we have yet to really understand how to, you know, what's in the ocean and, and what its benefits can be. And then more importantly, how to conserve, protect and engage with nature in a way that generations ahead will thank us for. And as we're all aware, this week in Nairobi was the um, climate conference, um, ACS and Billions of dollars have been pledged to conserve the oceans, to conserve, you know, um, terrestrial life as well. And yet, I think the next generation will probably point their fingers at us and ask a lot of questions as to why we didn't do more. But today, I am just thrilled to have somebody on the show that actually gives me great hope for the future of our continents and our world's oceans and their marine life. Gibbs Kaguru, soon to be Dr. Gibbs Kaguru, is a dear, dear family friend. I've known Gibbs for many years. His family is very dear to me. His older brother, Kenny, is one of my best friends in the world, was best man at our wedding. And so I've known Gibbs way before he became this internationally known shark geneticist and superstar. 
I know him, knew him as Kenny's little brother, and now he is making waves, diving deep, and doing incredible research, ensuring that sharks, not just here in our beautiful coastlines in Kenya, but across the world, that we understand them better. So let me tell you a little bit more about Gibbs. He is currently a part of the cast and crew of the When Sharks Attack 360. Ooh, that was a lot to say. When Sharks Attack 360 on Nat Geo TV. He's also in a PhD program currently studying, um, you know, just furthering his research of sharks and their DNA. He's also the recipient of the 2022 National Geographic Wayfinder Award, which is pretty outstanding for such a young researcher. He is following his passion for sharks from South Africa to the Maldives, but his story starts here in Nairobi. So I am just so thrilled to welcome my friend Gibbs Kaguru to the show. Gibbs, Karibu Nyumbani. Thank you, Lily. It's glad, I'm glad to be here, and it's such a pleasure. Oh, I'm so, so excited. You know, we our first memories together, like we're at Ken and Ruth's wedding years ago, and who knew we'd be here on the show talking about your research many years later. So it's it's really a joy for me. Yeah, so my, it's also my pleasure as well. And, you know, not much has changed. I'm still a snotty kid. Well, snotty adult. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, it's it's crazy to to think that uh, we've known each other for that long already. I tell you, I'm gonna keep all the the skeletons in the closet, so to speak. Yeah. But your brother, I talked to him yesterday. He was like, "Oh, don't, don't. This is what you need to say." But we'll save that for the outtakes. Yeah, yeah. He so, would want to expose me. For sure, for sure. He had some ideas. But before we, you know, dive deep into kind of the the big picture of, of your research, I think for many people, they would want to just understand. First of all, how do you, a Nairobi kid who grew up in urban settings, become such a dedicated marine researcher? Talk, talk us through kind of your path from being a city kid to somebody who spends most of his time now underwater. Yeah, um, well, growing up in Nairobi, I felt I was sort of insulated from what the comings and goings were in the ocean. And the only exposure that I had were a few documentaries that would show up here and there on Nat Geo or Animal Planet. And then also uh, KTN used to periodically air Jaws. And in my mind, that sort of sealed the deal that I was never going to go into the ocean because uh, that it, it scared me. And I, I watched it as a kid uh, multiple times um, with my family. And I just thought, you know, this is never going to work out for me. That, that, that was a family movie of choice for like bonding time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. is usually my, my brother, Fred, that uh, for some reason, every time I watched Jaws, I remember him being there. And also he used to tease me about it. So <laughs> yeah, it, it, again, the ocean, it was, it was far away. It felt far away from Nairobi, even though we have our own coast in Kenya, but when I finished my bachelor's, I had an opportunity to apply for jobs. And my undergraduate supervisor had passed on this flyer that said, you know, come dive with sharks in South Africa. It was an internship doing cage diving. And, you know, I, I can still remember feeling that initial fear of just like, there's no way, there's no way I could do a job like this. But I signed up just out of curiosity, just to see what would happen. And then I got the job and then it became very real. And I thought, okay, I really have to seriously consider this now because it's like, honestly, it was the only job that was available for me at that moment. And I, I guess I was just intrigued because when I looked at the flyers, I would see people working with sharks. And that also told me that if there is a possibility for them to do the job, surely I can do it as well. 
And, you know, I, I showed up for the job a few months after I got accepted. And then I worked at that company for six years, diving with sharks all around South Africa. And at that stage, it was for me written in stone. That's what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I just knew it. Wow. I have to ask you, we saw you at some point in South Africa. I don't know if you were in your, working at that company or when you were still, you were in school. Do you remember? Yeah. 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 We, I was still studying. I was doing my master's uh, in genetics at Stellenbosch and you guys came and saw the lab. Yeah. Uh, I think we went wine tasting after that listen, or listen, so. Listen, this is not what this show is about. This show is about the sharks. <laughs> yeah. What we did after does not matter. But yes, yeah, so we may have had a glass or two, Sorry, but, not, but I just am curious. I'm not trying to expose you guys. Yeah, you did. You, you took us around. I have such fond memories of that trip. I'm curious. So, you know, you talked about, you know, you saw these flyers, you thought, Hey, I can do it too. But there must've been a moment that you, were the people in those flyers black? Because I'm wondering if you were looking at them and seeing black Africans thinking, oh, there's our people in the water, I can do it too. Or you just have this kind of innate courage that you thought anything is possible and why not sharks? Yeah. And so in the flyers, I don't remember seeing a single black person uh, in, in any of the marketing materials. But I, I guess in my mind, as, as a human being that I'm able-bodied, I can think for myself, it should be possible. And if it's if you can see a path forward and there's possibility uh, and you have the will to do it, it can be done. And and I, I got to say, you, you know, you touched upon a really important point there. It's like there's maybe not as much representation in some of these fields as there should be. And, and there's more now when I look at uh, certain organizations like Minorities in Shark Science, uh, which really exemplifies, you know, how it, it is possible for people uh, who you typically won't see in a shark documentary to still push the boundaries of shark research and exploration. Um, and the more I see these types of things, the more I feel like I am not alone in this. There, there is, there are African shark researchers all throughout the continent. You know, this, this is. It is part of our territory, and I think that we have just as much of a place there as as anyone else doing this job. Well, and we were talking before we came on, Mike, about the show Team Sayari that was National Geographic's and Disney's first kind of completely African-focused children's show on nature. And you were one of the heroes that was featured in that series for this exact purpose, to show this young generation behind us, you know, the five, six, seven-year-olds who are now watching documentaries that they can be anything they want to be because here's Gibbs Kaguru underwater studying sharks, you know, wasn't on KTN when you were a kid, but now it is for, for the kids here, which is really, like you said, there's progress. And, we're, and that's, I'm excited that you are going to be one of those faces that kids will look and say, yeah, I saw that guy Gibbs. He could do it. I, I can do it too, which is, which is only hopeful. But tell me a little bit more about, you know, when you think about you know, it sealed my fate is what you said after six years there. What was it about sharks or marine life that captured your curiosity and your attention in that way? Yeah, you know, I think it's, and I, I'll probably say this word quite often in this conversation because I use this word a lot. And I think a big part of that was changing the narrative because what I had seen uh, uh, for my whole life and in the print media and in the news about sharks was death. There's only death if you go there. And when you actually sit on the boat 
or you're swim in the water or encounter these animals in any of in, in on, a, on a dive or so, you realize that this is not true. It's it's not completely true, at least. Sharks are wild animals. People do get bitten by these animals, uh, and sometimes these people do die. But it's the same story as you would get from animals like lions or hippos or elephants, but that does not make them these evil characters. And I think for me, that the whole idea that this was not going to be possible uh, was made worse by these types of narratives. And I think showing up and, and realizing that there's personalities to these animals, there's a possibility to understand these animals and then also safely interact with them. Then I thought, okay, well, we're not going to listen to, uh, to the Daily Mail, for example. We're, we're going to trust our instinct and, and also the mounds of data that's available about these animals. So that that's that's really what I feel like is that that narrative it it's yeah it it completely evaporated for me. So take me to your first dive, the first time that you're really encountering these animals close up. Do you remember what that felt like? Yeah, it was uh, it was an out of body experience. I would say I do remember the the anxiety building up because this was this was not just seeing the animals from a boat. You're you are going into the water unprotected. I mean, all you've got is like a, a spongy wetsuit. Oh, you're not on, in one of those cages? I'm thinking that you do some of those in the cage, at least the first one. Yeah, the, fir the first time I, I was in the water with the sharks, it was uh, in a cage. But I would say that there was that feeling of there's at least a little bit of security here because, you know, you have steel or aluminum bars between you and the animal. But I, I, I wouldn't say that was my true first true experience with sharks. I mean, I, again, when you're out of the cage, you become very aware that it's not, you can't just be there. You have to be present. And the things that you do, your mannerisms, your, your body language, all these things play in to how your interaction will go. And I think that it, it, it teaches me that, you know, first of all, when, when it comes to sharks, these things have to be very, like, very conscious. You can't just be like, you know, if you're feeling a bit of fear, you've got to say, okay, I'm feeling some fear. I'm not going to display that fear. And if you're, you know, if you're just enjoying the dive and, and being, you know, present and, and knowing that the sharks are there, acknowledging they're there, making eye contact, you'll have a great time. These animals are highly attuned to observing prey in distress. And their, their psyche is like, well, if I see a prey in distress, more often than not, this is an opportunity for me to forage. And you obviously don't want to be hunted by a shark, which is why they tell you don't act like prey. Which is how? Give us that practical. What does prey do? Are they flailing around? I mean, I don't imagine many of us will find ourselves maybe deep diving, but we might be enjoying the water somewhere. So what's a, what's a basic kind of guidance on how to keep yourself safe should you find yourself in that situation. First thing is don't run away. If you see a shark, don't run away because there is no way you're going to outswim a shark. The, the best thing is to just maintain your position and try to keep eye contact with the animal at all times to show them that number one, you're not afraid of them. You're not afraid that something's going to happen and that, you know, this is, this is not food. I am not food. 
I feel like a lot of situations where people encounter sharks, their initial reaction is, I got to swim away as fast as possible. So your heart rate increases. You start to splash around in the water. So it starts to also feel those vibrations, pick up the electricity that's coming off of your body. And then it starts to, again, visualize you as food rather than not food because we're not nutritious for sharks. We're not, uh, we're not part of their menu. Um, so we shouldn't act like we're part of their menu and easier said than done, but yeah. So have you come into that close of encounter? I mean, you're saying maintain eye contact. I pray I never have to maintain eye contact with a shark, but I imagine in your line of work you do. So what does that feel like? I mean, I know sometimes scientists, we, we interview them and, and they have the theoretical understanding, but if you take, you know, 12 year old Gibbs who was watching KTN and you put him in the water next to you, maintaining eye contact with that shark who, you know, gives the adult as a researcher, what does that feel like when you are that close to an animal of that kind of power? Yeah, it's, it's humbling to say, to, to say the least. You have this animal that is, uh, for example, in April, I was uh, in, the Mal- in the south of the Maldives diving with some tiger sharks. And there were some, it, it was this very weird uh, shoal of sharks where we had basically like 95% of these sharks were female and then like uh, 10% of those animals were large females and they're dominant. I mean, this is, it is just one of those things where you just like, you stand no chance. I mean, you're outmatched at every turn here, but they let you stay there. And you almost feel like you're in the court of some kind of nobility or royalty because there's, again, it's that humbling feeling of just like, oof, wow, this thing, this species has been around before the dinosaurs, before the trees. You know, much of life has not seen as many eras as sharks have. And you're just allowed to sit there and watch them swim. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's like there's a there's that humbleness, but there's also that joy of just like, I can't believe this is happening. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, I hope I hope that for anybody in any vocation that you feel that kind of joy and humility in your work and for you to have that kind of close encounter and to feel that instead of fear is, is pretty extraordinary. And it sounds like it is your research and your understanding of the data that has brought you to a point where you can interact with these animals in this way. So walk us through a, a day in the life of a shark researcher, a shark geneticist, which is hard to say, by the way. I'm proud that I keep getting that out, correct? I got to rebrand that, I think. I, you, you might have to, like a, a shark genie or something. <laughs> yeah. And you're also a National Geographic, you know, I don't want to say content creator, that doesn't seem fair, but in your interaction with them, you are telling stories about these creatures in a way that hopefully young people, adults, anyone, the public can understand. So walk me through what a day in the life, a day in the week for you is now as somebody who's really full-time thinking and working with sharks. Yeah, that's a, that's the thing is a, with my work, a day in the life feels, it's a bit hard to capture just one thing because there are some mornings where I wake up, you know, at 4am I I put my wetsuit on cruise out into the middle of the ocean and jump in the water with like 30 sharks. And then there's also days that I spend all day in the, in the lab, mixing reagents, manipulating DNA, 
And then there's the, you know, still, since I'm a PhD student, there's the long nights of writing papers and analyzing data. And it all, it, it, it's very varied. So I feel like it, it, number one, it keeps me on my toes, but it's, it also, it, it's exciting and it's it, uh, mentally stimulating. And I feel like most of my job is just spent trying to solve really small puzzles all the times, whether that's in the wild or in the lab uh, or behind my computer. It's all about taking this massive mosaic that is is nature and saying, okay, how do we understand this just a little bit more every day? And you just try to understand that one morsel and then you try to link all those little morsels together at one point just to say like, ah, I know how this works or even better, I don't know how this works. Let's try something new. You're truly a... Uh, uh researcher if you're thinking even better how this doesn't work but so why why is it important to understand the, the very things that you're talking about the puzzles how they fit together manipulating the dna why does that matter at the end of the day for the rest of us who are, are not at all you know even close to your world yeah i i see what you're what, what you mean there is so sometimes i have this problem myself where i i try to find how is the work that i'm doing meaningful to anyone else except shark scientists and, and I have this when I have conversations about things like protecting the planet uh, and preserving our natural resources. Sometimes when we talk about ourselves as human beings, it's almost like we're talking about some extraterrestrial um, animal that's come to planet Earth, uh, even though we are Earthlings ourselves. And our existence is inherently and intrinsically linked to every living being on this planet, which for their benefit is our benefit. And their survival is also our survival. It's our community. That's our, that's our literal community. And, and I think, yeah, when, when we look at the entirety of the ecosystem, we can't have oceans without sharks in the same way that we can't have uh, a savanna without lions. You know, I sort of think of these animals as uh, as the tax man of the ecosystem. Yeah, I don't know. I think in my mind, they keep everything healthy by taking out the sick and the weak animals. They promote the stronger animals to give them more space and more resources to proliferate. So in the end, if we're really talking about survival of the fittest, sharks are the the vector by which that happens in nature. You, you've said that so, so well, Gibbs. I mean, really, I, I love this idea that they are an extension of our community and their health is also our health. And certainly the climate crisis, conservation is, every single sector is thinking about this, whether or not you're in financial world or in the education world, none of us can escape it because this is our home. And you, you said it so beautifully. So let's maybe take a turn towards conservation. Um, I think about my kids who are just a little bit older than you, which really makes me feel old. But, you know, one of the things that they say to us all the time, kind of sarcastically, is like, thanks a lot. You really left us a fantastic set of circumstances to go into adulthood with, you know, between, you know, all kinds of racial issues to like the planet is melting. So thank you so much, parents. And, and you know, I have to sit with that sometimes. And, you know, we, of course, have tried to adjust our behaviors so that we're better about what we consume and how we live. But when we think about conservation, and in particular, if we can bring bring this home to Kenya and, and Africa and the continent, 
you know, because of the history of colonialism, a lot of these conservation efforts started under colonial rule. And what that looked like was the capture of land and, and you know, the overtaking of traditional practices or indigenous communities, homes. And to this day, we know in many places they've never been returned. You know, as a shark researcher, you know, I imagine that the oceans are the largest place to probably the hardest place to colonize. And yet there's still evidence of that. So how are you balancing kind of your conservation messaging, knowing the context in which, you know, we still here in Kenya, there's still a lot of resistance to some of that because the idea is that this is still rooted in a system that has not served black Africans. And so people have been displaced, communities, practices have been, you know, minimalized. I, I think you get what I'm saying. Like, how do we now as Africans in particular kind of reclaim our, our, place and both in the right to conserve, but also to enjoy nature as we did before. Yeah. I love how you, you contextualized conservation in that way, because I, I truly do believe that as Africans, we have a very tricky relationship with the term and the practice of conservation, because you have to ask what is actually being conserved here uh, when we're talking about that, you know, a hundred years ago or more, there were many African communities living in nature, and not just living in nature, but coexisting with nature. The ecosystem was a fairly more balanced at that stage. There was more wildlife, uh, more diversity of life. And since colonialism, we've developed this thing called conservation. But since conservation, animals have been dying at a faster rate somehow. And you have to like, you know, just look at the scale of time and say, like, does this add up? How is it that since conservation has happened, we've had like, you know, I, I, I think it's like the we've had only like two white rhinos left in the Mara Conservancy, which is essentially that area. They're functionally extinct. And in the same breath, thousands of acres of land have been taken away from local communities in the name of preserving or conserving wildlife, but what about conserving human life and human practices uh, in those areas? Because in my estimations, for example, the Maasai were great stewards to the planet and in Kenya and in, in Tanzania as well. We had, you know, they, they never overgrazed in areas. And for example, we talk, I talked about the tax man, like for example, if a lion wanted to tax a Maasai with a cow, he would do that. And there would be an understanding that that's how it goes. We're all living here. We all try to make the best of what we have. And it was fine for a time. And then uh, in putting it in the context also of our marine resources, surveys have been done uh, between Kenya and Tanzania looking for uh, shark and ray life. And we have a very... A unique species of, I'll just call it a species of shark for the sake of argument, called a sawfish. It's essentially like a flat shark whose nose looks like this medieval bludgeoning tool. It's like a sword with spikes coming out of it. A fantastic animal. I mean, really, you can't imagine like the different kinds of things nature produces. And you see a sawfish and it's like, wow. This animal, this is, this is a, an African animal we have here. But if you go to Diani or, or to Zanzibar or anywhere along the Kenyan or Tanzanian coast, 
you will not find one. And that is because these areas are completely overfished. It's not by local artisanal fishermen, it is by international fishing fleets. And these fleets come sometimes without licenses, they take what they want, and then they leave essentially nothing for the communities that live there, who, in my estimations, have been good stewards to the ocean. And, and going back to that thing about narratives, there was a time when this was happening uh, in Somalia and international fishing fleets would come in and they would take as much as they wanted without permission or respect to the local communities there. So the fishermen and the youth banded together as a militia to stop this from happening because this was not, this was not okay. And, and then they were, you know, the, the whole narrative that you heard in the news was these are pirates that are stealing international um, fishing fleets and ships. How, how, why would they do this? But then the thing is, when you ask why would they do this, you're not really getting the answer. You're just saying, we just need to get rid of them. And it's like, well, they're protecting their land. If you told me that someone went from another country into Spain or United States or to Japan and then just started fishing there, you'd be like, that is a ridiculous, that's a ridiculous premise. Like that can't happen. You can't just do that. It's not your land, it's not your uh, waters, but we still somehow, and, and of course, this is the same scourge that's affecting Kenyan and Tanzanian waters. So I think in some, in some regards, we should all, all honestly pay a little bit of respect to our Somali brothers who are actually taking the next step and being like, we, we're not going to just let this, you know, neo-colonialistic practice happen. You guys, if you want to have fish, you come, you get your license and then you pay us or whatever. This is not aid. Actually, this is aid. This, this is foreign aid, <laughs> you know? Right, right. This is equity. Yeah, because now we are on equal bartering, bargaining, discussions of cost benefits for both both sides. You've, you've said it so, so powerfully, Gibbs. I've actually not seen people weave that together quite as well as you have, because I think what gets muddled down is that conservation is the only way to protect our natural resources. Like there's a tool, it's called conservation, that's it. And I appreciate that you're saying there have always been good stewards. And by switching to a one size fits all kind of terminology and, and story, and method, we have eliminated the ways in which historically we have safeguarded our, our resources. So, so in your field in particular, and, and thank you for the story. Is it hammer, not hammerhead? What was that that shark called? Tiger shark? Yeah, I've worked with uh, lots of different sharks: hammerheads, great whites, tiger sharks. But what was the one in um, Tanzania and Kenya you were saying was gone? Oh, the sawfish. Sawfish, the sawfish. Yeah, you should Google that. It's a crazy animal. I, I was just thinking about how. I'm wondering, somebody like me, for example, somebody who feels like they're aware and, and trying to do better, how are we going to get the messages around the sawfish out? And what role is are you seeing maybe media or even yourself with the platform that you now have being able to communicate that message? Yeah, it's it, that's, a, that's a question I don't really know the answer to because it's really hard to change people's social attitudes to any issue which they're not familiar with or they're not, you know, completely entrenched in. And sometimes I feel like, uh, yeah, telling stories, for example, about 
the vast and wonderful life that we have in Kenya. And, you know, the fact that this life also has uh, a right to exist and to be there uh, and be protected. And, and then obviously showing these animals uh, in, in their glory. In my mind, that's what would change it for me. If I mean, if of course we have a lot of people that want to protect elephants and lions and rhinos because they've seen these animals and they've maybe some of them have also got an opportunity to interact with these animals on, on a game drive, for example. If people know that they're there, I would hope that they're their gut reaction would be like, first of all, like, why haven't I seen about this? Why is no one talking about this? And secondly, you know, how, how can I use my shillings or my vote to support this? And I think it, it also, it does have to come down to, you know, the government empowering people to, to be able to participate in their own environment. I, I like how they do it in the Maldives. I, I work in the Maldives uh, fairly frequently with a lot of communities there. And uh, some of these places I work in are UNESCO man and biosphere reserves. And these types of areas are characterized by the local communities influencing how their environment is run and protected. And I'll give you an example. I, as a researcher, go to one of these islands and I, before I do any work, I speak to the stakeholders, I speak to the, to the local councils and I tell them what I want to do. I want to go there, I want to catch sharks, I want to take tissue samples and you know, analyze the DNA so I can learn about these animals and how to protect them. And I went to one spot and I gave them the whole pitch, same pitch I gave everywhere, and they just said no. They're like, no, we don't, we don't need that here. Thank you, but we you know, wish you the best on your journey. And then I left and that was it. And of course I wanted to work there, but I also really appreciated the fact that they had veto power. The guys on the ground had veto power and they just said, you know what, well, we don't really want this, sorry. And, and I wish that we had something similar like that in Kenya, where if the fishermen were like, hey, we've got these massive trawlers that are just raking the ocean floor for everything that we own in our uh, environment. We don't want this anymore. Please go away. And then they just go away. And I'm like, that's that's what we need. We need the, the people that are there to have the ability to just, yeah, to have a say in what they have. Yeah, that's a, a powerful story, which I think is actually to your credit as a researcher to go in and actually also ask for that permission. I think we see so much of that disappearing, or if it ever existed in the first place. So your engagement and your style, I think, is, is unique. So we, I think we need both. We both need researchers, government entities, you know, conservation efforts to, number one, always center those Indigenous communities and voices, and also them to feel, the end, for them to have, own the power to say what they do and do they don't want. I think that's a really powerful story of how it could work um, and something we can aim for, which makes me really think, again, go back to the sawfish. It, it must be at times very, very heavy weight to know that you're working with some species that are either about to go ex extinct or maybe be beginning of your work, you saw them more frequently and now less. That must be a heavy weight to know that the extinction of certain species does depend on how we interact with them. How do you manage and handle that? Yeah, it's there's uh, 
there's certainly that dread that sits uh, on your heart when you think about, you know, maybe the, the efforts that you're putting forward may not result in, in nature coming back, bouncing back to what it used to be, you know, 10,000 leagues under the sea, for example. But I had this thing where, you know, of course, you just have to, you have to justify your every day you wake up to do this. And it's just like, well, I just think that if there is something worth fighting for or worth protecting, then it should be fought for and, and, and you should strive to protect whatever is left because that is an opportunity. And I think there will always be opportunities and whether, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be sharks. I mean, it can, it can be, uh, forests. It can just be planting trees, you know, and I, and I love Wangari Mathai, that protest of just going out and planting trees and being like, this is what's happening now. I'm going to do this. And now we have better forest protections and, and people that are actually involved in this work. And I think that, yeah, that that's, you just have to be so whatever, man, I'm going to do this. We're just doing this. And, and it's, if there's something to, to, if there's work to be done, then we're going to do it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't, uh, yeah, it, it's. Yeah. I hear you. No, I feel that there's the weight of the responsibility and also the power to do your thing, your little thing, which is what one guy Matthias said, you know, I will be a hummingbird, you know, that was like her little thing. Like I, but it was a big thing in the end and, and moves us still today. So you talked about a little bit earlier that sharks have personalities. And so I want to ask you a few questions around that, because I, I think that resonates. Like if I don't understand some of your research and the words that you've said in this podcast, I do understand personalities as a mother of four and a lover of many. I get that. So tell me, let's let's equate some people to personalities. Maybe we can do some celebrities and then we can do some people <laughs> that you might know. But let's start with you. If you had to say you had the personality of a particular kind of shark, which shark would it be? And, and tell us what that personality is. Oof. I would say if, if I could be, if I was a shark, if I was born a shark, I probably would be a blue shark. That's because, um, you know, kind of that uh, awkward skinny kid uh, that doesn't really have spatial awareness. I, I tend to invade people's spaces in, in very strange ways. That's the younger brother in you. But not, not in an aggressive way. Yeah, that's the baby brother in you, you know? That's that's your job, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, more often than not, when you're diving with blue sharks, you're you're literally putting your hand on your nose and being like, just please, a little bit of room between us would be nice. <laughs> uh, and it, it's, it's the weirdest thing. They're like, they're like puppy dogs. It's It's... Again, that's another type of, you know, personality you don't really see being talked about uh, with, with, with sharks. Yeah, I don't think people make that metaphor often, that they're just puppy dogs of the sea. Okay, so let us let me give you somebody else. How about Barack Obama? What kind of shark would you say he is? Oh, my gosh. Barack Obama. I mean, okay, first of all, Barack Obama is, is the coolest, <laughs> most stately stud but also very powerful and and measured. I would have to give Barack Obama. I had to. He's he's definitely a great white. A great white. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, honestly, when it comes to great whites, you should see the way they strut. I mean, when they're when they're 
next to a boat, they are just in charge. But they also don't have this, you know, this feeling of 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 like a hyper aggression. Okay. But you know, every strut, you know, like yeah, I got it. Like yeah, I, like that Barack Obama was like, I got it. Don't worry about it. Is a great white what Jaws is based on? Because I've actually never seen Jaws. But is that the shark in uh, in Jaws? That is the shark in Jaws, indeed. Do you recommend that movie, by the way, anymore? Is that something you say people? Should watch or or not really? Honestly, it was a good movie, but I think actually, have you heard of the Jaws effect? I have not. So is this this psychological term where people base their view on a real world issue off of a fictional portrayal of an mm. issue? And of course, Jaws touched upon shark attacks. Of course. And then the sort of the the end goal of the characters in Jaws was we have to kill that shark. And that's how people actually think about sharks these days. If a shark attack happens, they go and they're like, okay, well, now we're going to go and kill sharks. I mean, the Australians have done this famously uh, over the last few years, but it, it doesn't it doesn't equate because even if you go out to the sea and you kill some sharks, it doesn't necessarily reduce shark attacks. It just increases shark deaths. And the data has, has shown this fairly clearly. The Jaws effect is, is very powerful and it is based off the movie Jaws because of how it, it was the first block, first ever summer blockbuster movie because of how big and powerful it was. And I think I liked the, the, the making of the movie. It was a t- technically very good movie. It's uh, but yeah, if, I would say I don't necessarily recommend it because I know how people will think if they if they do end up watching it about sharks. And I'm like, well, fair, fair enough. Yeah. How do you balance that? Yeah, fair enough. OK, let me give you two more people that you have to give us personalities for. Let's bring it back right. home. Your brother, Kenny, what kind of shark is he? Ooh. You had to know this one was coming. I had to I had to say, Kenny, I won't ask you about Ruth. I don't think she's a shark at all. So let's just let's focus on Kenny. <laughs> All right. All right. I will give Kenny a tiger shark. And here's why. Tiger sharks can make a meal out of anything. They can, they thrive in just about every environment that they're in, you know? And I think when I look at my brother, Kenny, I mean, he's, he's been the CEO of like multiple companies and made it work different industries. And I think, okay, well, if you have to put those two together, we're, we're talking about a tiger shark that is like, if it's if it's hot, if it's cold, if it's salty, whatever, I'm going to make it work for myself. Yeah, I love that. Oh, that's you're such a nice brother. You're such a nice brother. You get points for that. <laughs> OK, the last yeah. one, I'll bring it home to Kenya again. I guess Barack Obama was also a Kenyan shout out. Um, what about Lupita Nyong'o? What would you say? What kind of shark would she be? Oh, man. Lupita. All right, this is this one. This one's gonna throw it because I mean, Lupita is also like just she's powerful, she's beautiful. Honestly, I'll I'll have to go with with a mako shark because a mako shark is also sleek, and it's it's the thing about some of these offshore sharks like mako sharks is that they're re- they really thrive on their own in a way and i think lupita is the kind of person that well when when i look at her 
she's very much a self-made in so many ways. I mean, she, she breaks boundaries without, yeah, it's just her. It's all her. And I think, you know, when I think of her again, beautiful, sleek, and with a, with a Mako shark, I think I'd have to pair her with that one. Well, well, thanks for playing along. Cause I think my, my goal on that was to just increase our language of sharks. I think we only ever think about the great white and that's the one we know, but just hearing you describe from the sawfish that, you know, sadly is not as prevalent to all the different ones you've just said, it hopefully increases our understanding of how beautiful and dynamic these, these creatures are. So as we kind of start to, you know, wrap up this conversation, it brings me back to the storytelling of the movie and now your work with Nat Geo. So first of all, let me, congratulations on being awarded the Wayfinder Award. That's pretty extraordinary. I was so proud of you. What does that, what did that mean to you to be recognized by probably one of the world's, if not the world's leading kind of nature focused brand? What did that mean to you? Yeah, it was huge. It, honestly, it was such an honor and it's, I, I had no expectations that, that something like that would come my way. I thought it was quite interesting also the the timing of it all because around the time I got my award was somewhere around like the 10 year mark where I had actually been working with sharks. And when I, you know, first signed up for that internship and got on the boat and started diving with animals, I just I thought I was just gonna be a fisherman you know, just living on the coast. And, and, but then it also, because I wasn't really looking to get something out of it, except for my own personal enjoyment, I really developed a lot of skills. And I think the, the Wayfinder Award, it just gave me that, that boost, the confidence boost, and also the elevation to say like, yeah, the work that I'm doing actually, yeah, it's, it's meaningful to sharks in, in a way. And, and I just hope that I can I can do it for another 10 years because I also feel like at some stage it, it also is going to be meaningful uh, to people to, to know that there has been some groundwork laid for the next generation of shark scientists and conservationists and African shark scientists and conservationists to come. And, and, and I only hope that eventually I can do do what I'm doing in Kenya. Um, and I'm actively looking, by the way, if anyone's listening, listening in on this, I'm actively looking for opportunities to work in Kenya on shark and marine conservation. So hit me up on my IG. Listen, um, that would be the dream <laughs> for all of us to have you back home. <laughs> yeah. Shameless plug. Hey, gotta do it. But yeah, that's, that's just my, my thought is like, it's, you know, it just, it's just a bit more fuel in the engine so that we can just keep going. And, and that's, that's what I, that's all I want. Yeah, I hear you. That's, that's, I think that's all we all want, right? We all want to be able to come. I shouldn't say all, but many of us just want to come home and contribute something to this place that we call home and, and awards like the Wayfinder Award. I'm so glad, thrilled that they've recognized your work. I remember the early days when you were first getting into it. And of course your family is mine. So, you know, but I think everyone was like shark geneticist or shark research like why and you know like just it's so it was so brand new I'm curious to hear like especially your parents when you first said you're going to be up close with these creatures were they worried for you uh, how did they feel about your choice of vocation yeah I, I remember getting in the first couple of weeks daily phone calls just to make sure that I was still alive and constantly like, hey, listen, if you need to come home, you just let us know. We'll send you right back. It's, it's fine. You don't have to do this thing. You don't have to do it. And I'm like, guys. And again, I, I, I also had my own 
my fair share of of trepidation with the whole thing because I had no idea what was ha- what was going going to happen or how it was all going to play out. But I think you have to be intrepid about these things, and it's okay to be scared and to feel lonely sometimes, especially if you're trying to break into something that you've never done or never seen anyone like you do. And and I really appreciated my parents because in the end, for sure they did. I don't think they wanted me there, but they never, they supported me and they never made me feel like they weren't going to be there for me to help me get to the next level. And and I think that's you know to me that's love. You know, it's it's saying like, I don't fully understand what you're doing just now. I know you 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 know what you're doing, and we're just going to help you get there. And and yeah, I don't know. I think that is to me like the greatest example of like what it means to like really be a parent. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Have they have they had a chance to come up close to your work? Have you been able to take them on a boat or close to the you know, I don't know if they dive, but Oh yeah. So I a couple of years ago I when I was still at the cage diving company, I did take them out on the boat. I took my Kenny was also there, okay. a bunch of my other siblings were there too. I was surprised they just got on the boat and they, I mean, I, I felt like they were so cool about it. I'm like, do you know how scared I was the first time? And you guys are just they jumping on the though. boat. You're like, all right, let's go. <laughs> They're way too cool for me. Honestly. Like I, like <laughs> if I was in their friend group, I would definitely be the weird one, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I can hang out with them every now and then. That's, that's great. It's family gives us roots, you know, and wings, which is what it sounds like your parents have done for, for you. You're, you're lucky. You're really, really blessed because I yeah. think for many, especially, you know, us on the continent, raising our kids, you just, you sacrifice so much to bring them to a certain place. So for them to have that trust in you is, is pretty extraordinary. So Gibbs, tell me what is next for you and what do you hope also the future of marine conservation work looks like? So maybe I'll start in reverse. What do you hope the future of your work and the work in marine kind of research will look like? Honestly, I don't know. And that's, that's because I, you know, with my decision-making, I, I tend to just go where something is kind of interesting. And, you know, that's, that's how I got into touch with the, in South Africa. It's how I got in touch with the Maldives. And I, I like following these, these, you know, less than traveled paths. Less travel? Yeah, that's right. Less travel. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, I, I like going down these, you know, these new paths to to try and see what's there. Um, I hope there's going to be more exciting stories to tell, and I, yeah, I'd love to take people along with me. Um, I think this is also part of me wanting to be able to to share this experience, but also to share the stories so that. You know, the that whole thing can become more rich, uh, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to just be the only guy there. I want to, you know, I've got my best friend comes out uh, on my research trips with me now, Walker, and um, yeah, I want, I want to just build a small pirate I'll squad come. that we can. Huh? You're looking for company. I'll, I'll come. Let me know where and when. Oh yeah, you honestly. If you if you uh, if you're willing to commit to it, I will take you out. We will go out and we'll find sharks. I'm actually looking for some sharks in Kenya okay. at the moment. Okay. Uh, I I don't want to give my spot away just yet, but sure, sure, sure. We have some bull sharks that are waiting to just get to to see me. 
All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to look forward. We'll talk about it in the group chat. We'll, I'll get into that group family <laughs> chat and, and hear the details. But yes. I have to ask you this before we, we close out because you're talking about the storytelling and you're part of When Sharks Attack 360 on Nat Geo. So I think if we have the Nat Geo channel, we can find you and watch that. But just with the storytelling, you know, with the name, When Sharks Attack, is that is that serving your purposes in terms of the stories you're trying to tell, though? I, I was curious about that, I have to say. And I know some of that decision is not in your hand. But, you know, what's the potential for a series like that to achieve some of your goals? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's catchy titles like that always get more viewership uh, when it comes to, to TV. Of course, it's not the exact narrative you want to paint about sharks, but I think it does touch upon something that we're all concerned about when we think about sharks, because more often than not, when people talk about sharks, the, you know, they will inadvertently think about shark attacks. And we wanted to bring a scientific perspective to find out what circumstances and what situations uh, give rise to shark attacks. What can we do to better understand them? Because they're, they are understandable. And I think just shedding some light using some t scientific tools will immensely help people be like, okay, we've demystified the shark attack. We know that if we have a bunch of fishermen fishing in an area where there are some large sharks, let's not get in the water uh, because there's, you know, sharks have very sensitive scent receptors. And maybe if I'm swimming there in the midst of all this fish blood and guts, it's not going to be good for me. But there's something more uh, heartfelt to When Sharks Attack 360, and that's the stories of the survivors. Because more often than not, these people that go into the ocean are ocean lovers, real marine enthusiasts that want to be in the sea because that's what they're passionate about. And not once do you ever hear any of the, the survivors of these negative shark encounters say, you know, I had a bad experience with a shark and now I want to go out and kill every last one of these animals. They always come back and say, yeah, it wasn't my day. I met the tax man, but uh, I'm, I can't wait to heal up so I can get back out there again, so I can go fishing or I can go surfing. That's it. And it's, yeah, I don't want to minimize their, 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 the trauma that they had because it is, it is quite traumatic to be in that situation. Um, but they have that healthy respect for life and for nature. What about the relationships between humankind and sharks in, let's say, the next 50 years? What do you think is ahead, potentially, if the status quo remains? Yeah, I mean, it, well, this, to me, the status quo right now is um, it, it's still very much uh, fear-based, and, and there's not a lot of respect and admiration for sharks like that we do for our other, uh, for example, terrestrial predators. So... We can't we can't keep going down that road because we simply can't afford it. That like it is an existential crisis for sharks is also an existential crisis for humans um, because they sort of maintain the conditions under which we live. So it's it's worthwhile. I mean, honestly, I one of the things I love the most is when I open Instagram and I see you know videos. Uh, of kids talking about wildlife and and exploring their backyards because yeah the, the these kids are the force that is going to change that and 
I don't know. I'm just, I honestly, I just feel like I'm along for the ride at this stage because yeah, we're, we're, I feel like my generation is sort of, we, we've done our thing. We've sort of put our mark in, but the next generation, which are going to be much better informed, much, much more sensitive and, and understanding about, uh, what happens with the world and with people. I'm so hopeful that, that we are not going to be living in a fear-based society or a fear-based economy, that there's going to be some real uh, change happening Yeah, for nature. My, my bet is on that generation too, absolutely. Well, before we let you go, we ask every guest two questions at the end of every conversation. So we'd like to equalize everyone, no matter how famous or big they are. So even though you're a shark geneticist, you're one of us. So Gibbs, what is your favorite drink or beverage? Favorite drink? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, I might I might have to go for for like a, a smooth but smoky scotch. You're so sophisticated now. I'm still I have to really not think of you as little Gibbs. You are a whole man that can drink scotch. <laughs> Well, that will be, we'll have to share one when you get home at Christmas. Hopefully you'll be home for Christmas. And then, you know, we focus on joy and justice on this podcast. And a conversation like this is a beautiful example of where the two coexist, the joy of nature, the joy of your work with the, the justice of preserving and protecting and stewarding nature. So what is bringing you joy today? What is bringing me joy? Honestly, taking photos and videos of wildlife. It, it, I'm, I'm looking at my desk right now and there's just cameras and lenses and it's never a chore or a task for me to go and, and capture nature, whether it's trees or bugs or it doesn't always have to be sharks, but I just, I love just going out and then just watching, you know, these little critters or something like that uh, move around. That makes me happy. Beautiful. Well, we look forward to seeing some of your work, maybe a coffee table book or something you can put, put out for us. Oh, yeah. That's not a bad idea. I should send you guys a print, actually. I've, I've got some cool shark photos that should be on the Salem and Hello uh, wall. Please send something our way. We will absolutely put it up. <laughs> well, Gibbs, thank you for spending time with me today. It's such a joy just to talk to you, to learn from you. National Geographic could not have a better ambassador for their work. And as East Africans, we could not have a better you know, champion of our land than you. I really just appreciate you so much. So thank you for being on Salam and Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Such a pleasure. I'm going to invite you again. So listeners, I hope you've learned something. If you have questions for Gibbs, please send us a DM at Salam and Hello on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can always email us too if you like to go the old school route, lily at salamandhello.com or producer at salamandhello.com. And so we'd love to hear what you thought about today's conversation. And till we see you next time, I guess we'll see you next week. What am I saying? We'll see you next time, next Tuesday for a new episode of Salam and Hello. I know it's hard, but baby, you just got to hold on. Mm -hmm. I know it's hard, but baby, you just got to hold on. Mm -hmm.